solo today, but good to be with you. Um, the other week, Carrie and I moved. I, I've told this, I've told you, or you guys have heard me talk about us moving before. Uh, we moved uh, just just up the freeway a little bit, and uh, it seems that there's this thing with moving, and maybe you'll be with me. Um, it's easy to get everything in the box, right? Totally, no. Here's what I mean. It, it, when you put things in boxes, there's an end in sight. It's like, oh, everything's away. Everything's been donated or, or trashed. And, and there's, the cabinets are empty. The floors are cleaner. Uh, and then there's, the table's gone. Everything, oh, we're done moving. And then here comes the fun part. Now you have to take everything out of boxes and put things away. And that is the never-ending process. You think you're done, and then you can't find your sandals. And then you start looking and looking for other different boxes. And then you walk out to your garage, and there's another box. You're like, Where, where'd that one come from? There's always another box to unpack. A couple weeks ago when we moved, I was, I was home. Carrie and Judah were out, and I was home alone and, and putting stuff away still. And, and I came across our picture box. And it was, it was all the pictures that were on the wall. And some of these pictures were, were like historical documents, right? I had hair in a couple of them. Beautiful locks of hair. You should have seen it. Um, it's, I, I'm bald as, as a gift to not let, make anybody stumble. And so, uh, but these pictures were, were there and I'm pulling them out and I'm looking at, I mean, there are wedding pictures, pictures of our friends, uh, pictures like artwork that we've had friends do for us. And then picture of my dad the last time we went sailing. And I'm looking at it going, these things are, these are great photos. And I don't tear up often, but it got, it got a little dusty. It was allergies, right? New house, new plants. But it was start, started to go, man, look at, look at these photos. And a thought hit me. All of these people in the photos, and most of them, I would assume, like me, kind of. Right? They, 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 have, they love me. They've told me that. They're my family, our in-laws, friends. These are the people that, that speak truth into our lives. They, they have a love for us. And I started thinking, if I had these pictures of, of my family and all these people, back when I was in middle school, when things were getting picked on, when I was like this tall and, and, and being, I got beat up a, a couple times. But there's, if I had that when I was getting cut from basketball teams, if I knew that I would be completely loved now, how would that fact changed myself back then? You see what I'm saying? Because we spend so much time trying to earn love and earn appreciation that we start doing some really weird things in order to feel accepted. But if I'm on the far side of those hard times and I'm in a place where I know that we have this tight community where we're loved and appreciated, if I knew then what I feel now, how would my life have been different? Are we following? This is what Paul's talking about in Ephesians. We're at the midpoint of the book. Uh, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 have a theme of this is who you are. So Paul's trying to beat into the minds of the people in Ephesus. You are this. You are this in Christ. You are loved. You are appreciated. You are gifted. He's going down the line. This is who you are. And so for the first three chapters, just a reminder, this is what Christ says and does and thinks about you. And then he turns the corner in Ephesians chapter 4 through 6, and we'll get to that in the next couple weeks of now that you know who you are, this is who you're supposed to be. 
And so Paul in the last in this chapter 3 is transitioning to that point and he's summarizing his first two chapters into this chapter. And he's recapping these themes and and your bulletin's blank because we were in Eastern Washington this last week all the lead pastors with uh we all get together once a year we plan out the year for teachings and everything. So we got to bulletins on Thursday and they have to be printed on Thursday. So yeah. So Paul gives us three themes. And if you want to, to write these themes down, the first one would be the mystery of this love. The second thing would be the foundation of this love. And the third would be immeasurably more love. And so Paul is wanting to remind the people of Ephesus of these three things. And so he says the first thing is the mystery of this love. And he's moving at the, he, he comes to this and he says in, chapter, in, in verse 3, For this reason, and the reason that he says this, the reason, whenever you see that, you want to look back and go, what reason, Paul? It's like a therefore. Why is it therefore? Look backwards and see it. See what Paul is saying. For this reason, and he just said that there's no division between anybody. The dividing lines, the man-made divisions between uh, between men and women, the, the divisions between races, ethnicities. There's no dividing lines. So Paul says, for this reason... I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. Basically, Paul's saying, have you heard what I have just said in the first two chapters? That is the mystery made known to me by the revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, that which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. There's a word that shows up three times. It's the word mystery. In Greek, it's the word mysterion, which means mystery. Uh, (laughs) But the Greek idea of mystery and the English idea of mystery are two different things. In English, we think of it something like, I grew up on the show Matlock, where it's like a whodunit. Anybody else do Matlock? Sweet, I'm not that old. Uh, but we had Matlock, we had Perry Masons, we had all of these mystery things. We have, we have murder mysteries now, and, and that's what we think when we hear mystery. It's this kind of whodunit. But mystery in Greek, in, in, the, in, the, in the way it's used here, is different. Mysterion is referred to as a truth in which some had been initiated and some had not been. Later, this word carried a connotation of a secret religious teachings that were restricted to certain people. So Paul's here talking about this mystery, and then he kind of spills the beans. He says, I'll tell you what the mystery is. And here's what he's getting at. God's love and acceptance isn't just locked away for one people group. It's it's for everybody to know and understand. The mystery isn't that there's a love for this, the mystery is how the heck is that love so big that it encompasses everybody? This is the mystery Paul talks about. He says in verse 6, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together with one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. The key word there is together. He says it three times. That together we are all one. That this love encapsulates both groups of people who we learned last week were so antagonistic towards each other. They're sharers of the promise. They're together with one body and they're co-heirs. 
This is the good news, Paul's saying. This is what he's so jazzed about. He's writing probably in all caps. Everybody is invited. Everybody comes to the table. This message that was now hidden, he says, is now wide in the open. But it doesn't end there. If it ended there, we go, oh great, it's solved. The same love that Christ has for each of us isn't just big enough for to unite those two groups of people into one family. It's bigger than even that. Why is it such a mystery? Because in their minds, they had no clue that God could love this big, that no clue that God can love even the Gentiles. For them, those people were beyond redemption. But Paul's saying it's bigger than redeeming the unredeemable. It's sort of like this. How many of us use Google to solve arguments? You'll say, how far is it to my house? And someone says, it's 10 miles. No, it's more like three. Let's Google it. And that's a verb we invented. And so we Google it and we go, oh, it's five. We're both wrong. And so Google solves arguments. So Paul's saying, if you were to Google how deep and how wide this love is, you would get something like 17 trillion trillion responses in 0.75 seconds. It always cracks me up. They tell you how fast they, they calculated everything. Paul's saying that this is so big, this mystery, this love is so deep, you, you get too many responses, and if you're lucky, you'd get through page five before you're dead of all the responses. This is how big this mystery is. He says in verse 8, here it is, Although I am less than least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles this boundless riches of Christ. The word boundless there means untraceable or unsearchable. Here's what they would include if you were to read some of the Google uh, searches. In Christ, in this love, we have a resurrection from death of sin. We're victorious in the enthronement in Christ. We have reconciliation with God. We have the end of hostility, the beginning of peace, access to God through Christ by the Spirit, membership of his kingdom and household being an integral part of his dwelling place. We have spiritual gifts, the glorious inheritance of God that God has in store for us. And we have so much more. And this is just found in the first two chapters of Ephesians. The the riches and love of Christ that he has for us, this mystery, can be traced. That's just the first two chapters. Imagine the other letters that Paul wrote. Imagine the Gospels. Imagine the other books in the New Testament that are written by other people. Imagine the other books in the Old Testament. This is just scratching the surface of what we have. Authors had tried to put words to it, to try to capture. They use words like inexplorable or unfathomable, inexhaustible, illimitable, inscrutable, which is a fun one to say, incalculable, infinite. Or if it was me, I would just summarize by saying the riches that Christ has for us is infinity plus one. It never comes to an end. What Paul is getting at in a roundabout ways, he wants the, people in, in, wants the people in Ephesus to know that they are enough. That they're complete. That they don't have to go out and try to earn more approval or earn more grace. You are enough. And it's important that we see this. You're enough right now as you stand or as you sit. You're enough. You don't have to earn God's love. It's already there. And Paul is telling them this because he's going to do something in chapter 4. He's going to give them some things that they need to be doing. But before you get to rules, know that the rules don't make you more loved. The rules flow out of that love. 
So before you even try and be better, you are already good. We've convinced ourselves that we're bad. In Genesis 3, it's the fall. That's where sin comes in. Before the fall, we were created good. And this is what Paul is saying. You are good. You are loved. You don't have to do anything else. At the base level of who you are, you are loved, and you are loved completely. Here's why Paul is doing this, because he wants us to grasp it. He wants our first and foremost uh, energy of our time and our, and our lives to be rooted in this love. And from this love, our life comes. This is why he talks about the foundations. Look in verse 14. And I'm sorry, Craig, I didn't give you scriptures back there. So Craig is just trying to keep up. So verse 14. For this reason, the reason that we just talked about, the, the love that he wants us to get, the mystery, for this reason... I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love. And we'll stop there. Paul is praying this prayer. And he wants the love of Christ to be known in our deepest parts of our lives. And the first thing he says is he wants you to be strengthened in your inner being. He's praying that Christ take residence in their lives. He wants, he wants the residence not to be a temporary, but a, but a full-on permanent home. So in those times of weakness, or in the times of insecurity, in the times when you start to doubt who you really are, you could fall back on this strength of this identity that you have in Christ. There's a confidence in strength. Because this confidence, we can grow, or we can grow into it. And then in the times where the storms come, we can run straight into the arms of this love for us without any fear. It's the story of the prodigal son, right? The son comes and he says to his dad, essentially, I wish you were dead. In fact, hurry up and die so I can have my inheritance. And then he takes the inheritance, dad's still alive, and he goes out and wastes it. We've heard the story. He goes and he spends time with pigs. He eats with them. He exhausts all of his money. Eating with pigs is a big no-no in that day. The pigs were considered, considered unclean. And now they're delicious. But he's eating with pigs. He comes back. And then he, he, he comes to his senses. He's on the far country, the text says. And then he starts walking back. And what's the picture we have of the father? He's standing at the doorway, and once he catches a glimpse of his son on the, on, the, on the horizon, he pulls up his robe, which is a, a no-no of a man of his stature, and he runs, which is also a no-no of a man of his stature, to meet him. And then all of his smell and filth takes him back and embraces him, throws a party. That son couldn't escape the love of his father. This is what Paul is saying, in the weakest times, in the times where you feel most far from God, in the far country, you still can't escape the strength that comes from his love. And it's in that strength we can rely when we are weak. This is what Paul's talking about in first, Second Corinthians, when he says, in my weakness I find strength. In times of utter exhaustion, we can lean into that strength. Then he says, I want you to be strengthened in the innermost parts of your beings. And he says, I want you to be rooted and established. Paul is mixing metaphors. Rooted, obviously it's a tree, but it's a tree with these deep, deep roots. Think of the tree that's talked about in Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked 
or stand in the way of the sinners, or take a, take a seat in the company of mockers. But those who delight in the law of the Lord and who meditates on it day and night, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields in its season fruit and whose leaf does not wither, nor uh, whatever they do, it prospers. Those roots are deep. They're tapping into something that gives life. That's what Paul's asking. He wants you to have the strength, and he wants you to be rooted not in something that's temporary, not in something that's shallow like a weed that you could just pop up out of nowhere. He wants your roots to be deep, and it wants to be connected to the only life source that lasts. He says rooted. And then he says, I want you to be established. This is a construction metaphor. It's a foundation. In chapter 2, Paul talks about the cornerstone that was laid, that was Christ. And the cornerstone had to be laid just perfectly because everything was built around the cornerstone. So Paul's building on that metaphor and he says, I want you to be established. I want your foundation to be deep. I want it to be solid. I don't want it to be like the kind of place where you walk across the floor and everything shakes. I want it to be a solid house. I grew up in California where there's earthquakes like every other day. We know what a solid house feels like. Some houses, you don't even feel them. Some houses, you think it's a big one. It's only like a 2.5. And so he wants you to be established. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 7. He says, you can build your house on sand, where its foundation will be washed away with the first storm. Or you can build your house on the solid rock that can withstand anything that comes against it. Paul says, you want to be established in this love. You want to be rooted in this love. In both cases, the stability is the same. It's the love of Christ. It's the soil in which our lives are rooted, and it's the foundation of which our lives are built. Because here's the hard reality. We find ways to cope with our insecurities that are not in the love of Christ. We pop pills. We take the drink. We, we swipe left, right, up, down, whatever it is that we swipe now on the apps. We click share so we feel important. We use the hashtag so we feel that we're a part of something. We visit the porn sites so that we can feel loved and connected. We do all of these things so that we can feel important, so that we can feel accepted. We start to find answers in places that never bring life. These are the ones that aren't established ways of feeling loved. We're coping. It's like taking a cold medicine pill, like taking a decongestant and thinking you've cured the cold. It's always going to come back. The cold's going to come back. You're going to think you beat it, but you didn't. We're covering the symptoms, and that's the easy part. That's why we do it. We're coping with them rather than treating the illness that we have. This is the mystery, that in Christ we find the answer to those things in which we're searching for. Our lives weren't meant to simply cope Our lives are meant to be strong. Our lives are meant to be rooted and established, knowing this love that comes for Christ, and it is for us and in us, and we're supposed to be anchored in that place. Paul says this in verse 18, that you may have the power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, and how deep the love of, is the love of Christ. 
Verse 19, and that you would know this love that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of God's fullness. There's a lot of words in here that can, the question this Friday on, the, on, on Facebook was what makes you geek out? There's a lot of words in here that we could totally nerd out on, but I want you to look at one of them with me. It's the word grasp. I want you to say this, cotalabano. Say that back to me, cotalabano. Okay, the rest of you, one, two, three, cotalabano. Catalambano is the word grasp. It might be it translated in some of your texts as the word comprehend. In other places, it gets, it gets moved around in, in what it actually means. And that sends the radar off to go like, this is a fun word. It means grasp. It means ambush. It means to be taken by surprise. It means to be smacked along the side of the head where you weren't expecting it. Here's what it also means. It's like you're walking into a dark room. And your friend, who you thought was your friend, is standing behind the door. And as soon as you walk past, they go, bang! And then you jump, like some of you just did. Taken by surprise, ambushed. Paul is saying, I want you to be ambushed by this love, that you are not expecting it. 1 Thessalonians, he says it this way. Beware, this is 1 Thessalonians 5, 4. Beware unless judgment day Catalabanos you. It takes you by surprise. It grabs you. It amazes you. It jumps in on you. It surrounds you. Peter uses it this way in, in Acts 10.34. He uses it on himself. He just finished having lunch with Cornelius, the, the Gentile uh, Roman soldier. He just had bacon for the first time, so his life is forever changed. <laughs> he comes back and he says, I never will really get the right, right phrasing. He comes back and says in verse 34, now I realize that God does not play favorites. The word realize, Catalambano. Now it has been revealed to me. It has ambushed me. I'm shocked. I'm amazed. I'm thunderstruck. When we first moved into, uh, our, into our place, it was like February, and there was a rainstorm. And coming from California, we were always shocked that rain actually exists. And so... We're sitting on our porch, and I wanted to go for a walk. I want to see what it was like to walk in the rain. So I put on my jacket, and I go down, and I'm two houses down, and all of a sudden, thunder hits. And it is the loudest thunder I have ever heard in my entire life. I jumped. I, I swear my vertical was about that high. Not only did I jump, I jumped and turned at the same time and ran home. It's, Carrie was laughing at me. She, I, I, I had to change my pants. It was so loud. I was thunderstruck. The thing about being thunderstruck, the thing about being amazed, the thing about having Catalabano happen to you is you always remember it. So Paul says, I want you to come to this truth. I want you to be surrounded by it. I want, you, I want this love to knock the wind out of your sails. Paul's saying to the Christians, you know that God loves you. And once you fully grasp this, once you are able to be ambushed by this, once you're able to be conquered by it, you'll be amazed. But to experience this love, Paul says first, strengthened, rooted, established. And then when you experience this, we won't fall for the coping mechanisms that we fall for anymore because we won't need to. Because this love surpasses everything. Once you realize that you have the real deal, you're never going to want to go back for an imposter. It's sort of like In-N-Out. Once you have an In-N-Out burger, it doesn't matter what you say about Dick's burgers. In-N-Out is better. 
And you never want to go back to Dick's once you've had the real deal. Are we following now? Okay. Once you've seen it, you don't want a coping mechanism any longer. You don't need anything else. You don't need anyone else. You don't need another degree to complete you. You don't need another relationship to complete you. You don't need another friend to complete you. You are complete. And the best thing is everything in your past, the shame, the regret, the things that people have said, gone. God doesn't worry about it, neither should you. You are complete. Paul says this in Romans. He says, how high and how deep and nothing can ever separate you from the love of Christ. And because of this love, it it completes everything about us and then we can have immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine. Remember those picture frames that I was unpacking and I was looking through and be reminded of all the ways I was good looking and all of the ways that people loved us around us and all all of these things that people knew completely, knew us completely and loved us and accepted us completely. Remember the question I asked you, how would you live your life differently knowing who you are now, knowing the love you feel now compared to what you had then? It's called eschatological realism. It's one of my favorite, it's one of my most favorite concepts in the Bible. Your future self is loved, whole, and accepted. Our job is to live into that future self. Eschatological is future things. Realism is reality. It's the reality of who you will be, and that's who you are now. It's attention. But if you can see that, how would your life be different? When those days come and people tell you you're not enough and your world shrinks, when those happen, our imagination shrinks, It's stifled. Our calling becomes limited because we allow those words to come in and we allow them to cast doubt on what we truly are. And our lives become questions. And instead of completeness, we start thinking of everything we're lacking when we're not lacking anything at all. And because of this, we question everything. We begin to think that we're not good enough. And we start telling ourselves that we're not good enough. We start calling ourselves sinners. We write theologies that say we are just sinners, when really you're not just a sinner. Paul calls you a saint. God has called you good. Jesus died for you. You are not a sinner. You are loved. You are complete. You are whole. You might forget that, and you might sin from time to time, but that's not who you are. God says you are loved, complete. Don't define yourselves by everything that you aren't. Because that stifles what you can be. Believe what he says about you. So Paul is imagining this new reality of who you are based on who God says you are. Then he writes this. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. According to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Because you are complete in God's love, you can go for your dreams. God's ideas for you are immeasurably larger than what you can ever imagine. Think about God's track record. He starts with the man and his wife who are in their well into their 90s, and he says, I'm going to grow a nation from you. You think Abraham ever imagined he'd have a child? Sarah laughed at the idea, his wife. But he says, Hey, you're going to do this. Sure thing. Isaac comes. He chose Moses, an orphan, and says, you're going to lead a nation. Moses excused himself. He never imagined. He tried to get out of it. David was the runt of the family. It calls him the runt. He was the one that dad forgot about. 
Samuel says, do you have any other kids? And Samuel goes, and, and Jesse, David's dad goes, yeah. Yeah, I think I got one more. <laughs> David led the nation. David picked five stones, took out Goliath. He calls this man named Gideon. When Gideon is called, Gideon literally says, I think you have the wrong guy. Gideon forms an army that's a quarter of the size of the superpower he defeats. And they defeat the superpower and they liberate Israel for a time. And he chose a virgin named Mary, probably 14 to 16 years old, and says, you're going to have my son. And through this, my son, the entire world will be liberated. He took a zealot, a tax collector, and a fisherman. And it's not a bad joke. He took these three people. He called them. And then he entrusted them with the message to change the world. Peter denied him three times, literally ran away, says, I don't know this man, took off running. He brings them back and says, upon you, I'm going to build this church. He took Paul, who was, his life's goal was to destroy the message of Christ, and he makes Paul the chief messenger. You think they ever asked or imagined that they would do something like that? Our God has quite an imagination, and he has quite the method to do these. He will use you if we are rooted and established in this love. I echo what Paul says. I want to say you live, we live fully into who we already are, complete, loved, and whole. May we never come to an end of unpacking all the love that Christ has for us. May you live each day opening a box that you didn't know was there and may it surprise you of what's inside of it. And may you wonder. May we know the fullness of the fullness of the fullness that is within us. And with tears in our eyes, may we hang that photo of our God on the corner of our hearts and say we are loved because that God has your name on his hand, your name on his heart. You are complete in him. That's where we begin to live. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that we are loved wholly and completely. That we don't have to earn anymore. You gave us grace. We can't earn the grace you've given us. And that grace never runs out. It overcomes all of the mistakes, all of our histories, all of our family histories, everything that we're ashamed of. It is swallowed up by that love. You call us complete. And so, God, I pray that we as a community would live into that completeness. That we would be strengthened by that completeness. And that we would stop trying to make ourselves complete by things that will just fade away. Jesus, we thank you for your love. It's in your name we pray. Amen.